Hello and welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. I'm Jennifer Johnston and during this series I'll be talking to prominent music professionals about the relationship between food and music and everything in between. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a subscription-only online cookbook and mixology resource written by musicians from all over the world, sharing their food traditions and tastes to raise money for Help Musicians UK, a charity offering one-off hardship grants to musicians adversely affected by the music industry shutdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. Food is not just a universal need, but also a universal link to our homes and communities, and a universal pleasure, just like music. We rely on food in the same way that we rely on music during extraordinary times like these, to bring structure and a feeling of normality to our days, to alleviate boredom and frustration, to entertain, to strengthen the feeling of community, and to bring comfort, joy and solace. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a means of digitally breaking bread with each other, of sharing and appreciating our diverse food cultures and of creating new memories. Please subscribe at www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's a one-off payment of only £10, every penny of which is a donation to Help Musicians UK. And you can also follow our progress on our dedicated Facebook and Instagram pages. I am delighted that my guests this week are the Queen of Jams and Pickles, American mezzo-soprano Lucy Schaefer, and her husband, the King of Sourdough himself, tenor Christopher Gillett, who have been spending lockdown in their home in Wiltshire in England. I'm not ashamed to say that Lucy and Chris are two of my favourite people in life, equally passionate about new music, supporting composers through their successful not-for-profit venture, Wild Plum Arts, and food, both extraordinarily good cooks who believe strongly in the power of local produce and foraging. You'll hear their views about the relationship between food and people and creativity, about keeping things simple, and about asking the right questions in life. But first, a huge thanks to the sponsors of this series, Berry and Rye, Liverpool's beloved speakeasy, hidden behind an anonymous black door, a cocktail bar with a huge heart and great jazz. During lockdown, we've all become very aware of how important local businesses are within their communities. Berry and Rye and their mixologists, the best in the business, have set up a delivery service on Fridays and Saturdays where they bring their signature cocktails ready mixed to your door, hugely appreciated, especially by parents who have faced a stressful week of homeschooling. Cocktails available include classics like Negroni, Manhattan and Old Fashioned, and all you need to worry about is whether you have ice in the house. You can find them on Instagram as at Berry and Rye. Now to introduce my guests. Grammy Award winner Lucy Schaefer has been described as the go-to gal in contemporary opera, a lauded performer of composers as diverse as Adams, Birtwistle, Nussen, Dove and Heggie, and she would dearly love to add some more women composers to her list. Lucy is the founder and artistic director of Wild Plum Arts, which supports composers by commissioning new works, promoting the performance of new works, and establishing a permanent free artist's residency at Benjamin Britten's former home, the Red House, in Aldborough. She is joined in this endeavour by her husband, Christopher Gillett, the renowned tenor, as artistic administrator, who is even better known for his singing than he is for his writing and his sourdough. I'm delighted that they now join me. Welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. Welcome, Lucy and Chris. Thank you for joining me. I want to talk today about lockdown and how you're coping, because it seems to me that musicians, bizarrely, are coping extremely well. How are you finding it? Uh, yes, fine. It's, uh, it's like being away on a very long gig when you're abroad, and uh, but you never go to rehearsals. <laughs> you're just stuck in the gigs the whole time. We're so used to feast and famine that 
when you come home, you know, you, you dig in and you do things and you, because when you're on your road, you're off doing your thing and when you come home. And so it's about the cleaning that hasn't been done for the last how many weeks. I think we have a tool set that's different than, you know, your average normal person walking on the street. And in general, we're okay. We're still married. It does bring up lots of questions and we do sit around chatting about the bigger picture, which is something we like to do anyway. But we seem well, we seem to be extremely busy. I mean, this whole idea of sitting around reading books or watching TV during the day is just not happening. I mean, we're just getting on with this all the stuff that we uh, need to do. And very often it's the stuff that we put away for other times in inverted commas. The stuff that when we are traveling, we think, oh, we'll do that when we get home and never get around to it. Lucy's been having a massive clear out. I've been adulting. (laughs) I have gone through three, and I'm not even done, three black bags of shredding old documents of things that, you know, of course, you're thinking, okay, got to do my 10 years of keeping all my tax documents here because Uncle Sam is, you know, Uncle Sam. It's just unbelievable. And the cathartic nature of that process, the feeling that I'm lightening the load, it's been great. But then I see how long I've been putting things off and, and then I beat myself up for the next hour. You know, so it's it's a very funny cycle. I don't know if anybody else feels that way too, but... I'm finding that, because I, I moved into my house in October and haven't really been here since then much. I seem to be shifting piles around. I've got through the piles to a degree now. The, the remaining piles are all in one place now and they're all to do with paperwork. Um, it's just finding the strength to look at it and go, right, okay, today's the day. Um, and it's quite easy to find other things to do, not least... <laughs> Food. Yeah. Food has become sort of front and centre of all of our existences. Ironically, for you two, food has always been front and centre for your existence. <laughs> anyway, um, I've never known anybody quite so foodie in the in the sense of even the hunter gathering sense of going out and foraging for food, being a sourdough master, Chris. You know, your your whole existence. Is, is very much, you know, dominated by living well, which I think is extremely cool. Well, it's also driven by being a cheapskate. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually quite perfect in the sense of marrying um, music and food. And that the reason Chris learned how to do sourdough is that I was here at home needing desperately the house to myself to prepare for a recording. So I put him on a sourdough course to get them the hell out. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's brilliant. What a present. It was a Christmas present, knowing that I had to record in February. And I thought, hmm. And a friend of ours, who's the brilliant artist, Karen Wallace, who did the Wild Plum logo and blah, blah, blah. But she um, she had gone on this course and said, oh, I'd go again if you go. So off they trotted to, yeah, to Edinburgh. Honestly, it was life-changing. Uh, I didn't expect it to be. I was a bit cynical. I kind of thought, oh. Imagine. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not good one. I'm going on the idea of what, going Chris, on. be cynical. Gosh. Well, yes. Uh, not so much that. I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not a sort of easy socialite. So, you know, meeting strange people on a, on a course for a weekend is my idea of hell normally. <laughs> so, and then, it, but it, uh, the, I mean, the teacher, uh, Andrew Whitley, was, was wonderful. And it was only, it was only a weekend, but, um, but he instilled this, um, well, bug in me, I suppose. Actually, it, it was almost a philosophy. And, and the idea of baking bread without all the extra bits and pieces, because it's so easy. To, you think you know, the bread is full of milk powder and, and oil and yeast and all these other things you add to it, but it's, it shouldn't be. Just, it's just flour and water and a little bit of salt. And in that sense, do you think, you said it about being philosophy, that it's almost sort of become a sort of food religion for you, that baking your daily bread has gives you something beyond just the, just the eating of it? I do do it wherever I go now. It's largely, it's also quite cathartic. If you've been stuck in a rehearsal all day and are going slightly balmy because all you've had to do is move forward three feet and then move forward <laughs> back, back three feet, you know. <laughs> in some director's vision and you come back at the end of the day so god what am i doing in my life you know then you can sit down and make well not sit down but you get you get you roll up your sleeves and make a loaf of bread and it's um it's very visceral it's very uh human basic it's um, yeah it's grounding yeah 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 yeah. and you know it's an extraordinary process 
this natural thing. Nature provides you with this uh, way of making this delicious food stuff. I can't emphasize <laughs> too much how how satisfying it is baking a loaf of bread from scratch with no funny bits in it. No and bread. also a perfect marriage, really, for Lucy and all her jam making. Oh, what pickle a- making. Yes. I mean, what an amazing thing to have a bread maker and a pickle maker in the same house. It's brilliant. Yeah, well, it's- I like to think I provide the base for her. <laughs> No competition, eh? <laughs> no, none whatsoever. Well, I always call Chris my earth potato, you know. And I, if I come up with some sort of dream, he'll suck his teeth, you know. And he provides the, the earth basis to my Piscean dreaming, you know, OCD nature. But it, the jam and the pickles, it, it's, I was thinking about this in the shower as you're preparing to chat with you this morning. And, and I think it goes back to real basic things in my family that, you know, all four of my grandparents came over from Poland in the early part of the 20th century. You know, we're talking peasant stock. We're not talking anything beyond that. Just really simple folk trying to make a, a better life. And and my paternal grandmother during World War II basically provided pierogi and, and all sorts of baked goods for stores in, and delis in Chicago. And that sense of farming and, you know, during the Depression, she kept my dad and his siblings fed by foraging mushrooms and wild strawberries, and catching fish from the local river. You know, Dad used to talk about how um, the, the string of mushrooms through the attic to dry out. You know, <laughs> he must have had spores galore in their system. But, uh, you know, and potatoes and onions and, and mushrooms was a you know, standard fare for supper, because my dad was born in 27, so all that sort of time of, of ch- early childhood is, is that sense of depredation. In, on a on a farm in in Wisconsin because they left Chicago to try and find a way to eat since no jobs are available, so that's sort of in my DNA. In fact, I was thinking one of Nana's recipes would be a great contribution to the to the recipe book. But I might go with my step grandmother on the paternal side because she left a lot of wonderful pierogi fillings and, and stuff. But it's in my DNA. And then my eldest sister, who's sort of half my mom, half my sister, because she was 16 when I was born, she married the local dairy farmer. So there, there was a huge garden. So we'd be picking things and foraging for berries and making jam and putting away sweet corn and putting away pickles. And, and so it was growing up once I came back with my parents because most of my childhood was in the Orient. You know, that was my childhood. So to find a man whom I marry, whose mother was a trained chef, who belonged in the kitchen, who liked that sort of creativity, to basically say that was the perfect recipe for finding a grounding in the household, in the marriage, in the relationship, and feeding the kids and having fun and teaching them how to make things and watching them now as adults do things goes to show that our food tastes, our food cultures within a household are very much dictated by our childhoods and our upbringings. The way they cook or the way our grandparents cook very much has an impact even in today, in, in our society today, where yes, we have the capacity to go out and buy fast food wherever we like. Mm. But actually, for a lot of us, that's not a particularly attractive thing. And so it, it's very interesting, particularly during lockdown, that for all that people have whinged about not being able to get access to McDonald's or whatever, for most people, I know that they're quite happy actually cooking at home mm. and, and have surprised themselves with the things that they wanted. I mean, I very much am a product just like you of my upbringing. And I, I've found myself cooking all the things that my grandmother would cook for us as children. It's true that our emotions are very much tied to what we eat. It's like the bottom of your mantra, if you will, on the website, you know, the last thing you say is food is love. That sense of nurture of, we always tried to have around the, the dining room table, the time with the kids. We never ate separately. It was always all four of us together. You know, when we were, it's not like feed the kids first, put them to bed because they're a little older anyway. They were five and seven when I showed up, but that sense of being together, it, it's so vital to not only nutrition bodily, but I'm going to go ahead and say it, but nutrition spiritually as far as connections because and another one of my mantras you know it's it's always been about connection and it will always be about connection and i suppose that's why we use the phrase you know comfort eating because we need that comfort food that reminds us that we're loved that we're cared for that we have value 
I think we're also a bit afraid to recognize it actually at times. I think that this whole experience of this pandemic has really brought to the fore actually quite a lot about mental health and psychology and philosophy and how we cope through times of adversity. So I don't think there's any shame in actually discussing it in these terms. I think perhaps it hasn't been discussed enough in those terms. I agree. We've allowed our children to think that food is something you grab stuff in and go. A lot of families don't do what my family does, which is to sit around and have a big family dinner. There's a lot of families for whom mealtimes are staggered that they don't eat together. And so if nothing else, out of this pretty horrendous situation that we're all in, perhaps it's family togetherness that might be the silver lining. And there's been quite a lot of perhaps unwitting discussion, really. People have posted on social media as well, photos of their food, and then very often have made a comment, oh, this is what my grandmother would have made, or, Mm. oh, I really miss my mum today because I wish she was sitting here with me at the table, whatever. So there is a very direct connection. And I think that's why I particularly love wild plum arts and the sort of philosophy behind it, because that's the philosophy that you've taken, isn't it, in terms of the residency in particular? Well, at the moment, we we run at the Red House in Alborough, Britain's old home. We have five, six composers uh, at any one time who's staying there for a week each. Uh, and during the day, they they are on their own composing. We usually have a couple of collaborators. Uh, so somebody, we might have a composer and a librettist working at the same time. But otherwise, everybody's on their own during the day. And we provide all the food for them. So we provide all the things they need for breakfast. So there's homemade granola. We call it grusely because it's not quite as granola-y as some people like. But anyway, uh, and a bread and jams, all this sort of stuff. And then we provide also with them with everything they need to make their own lunch. So there's cheese, hummus, fruit, more bread, soup, all this sort of stuff. But in the evening is the crucial thing, is when everybody comes together and we feed them a large meal together. For this sort of community moment in the evening, this coming together, is we found it terribly important, not only for the composers individually, but for them as a group. But they, um, if you spent all day on your own, as we all know now, well, a lot of us know now, working on your own individual projects to come in the evening together in the evening and sort of release and share and talk and share food is a tremendous release. And it's very good for their sort of mental health, I think. Uh, and it's a very wonderful place to exchange ideas. And you see that we saw these friendships grow. We did this last year for the first time during the course of a week over, over food. And it was... Um, Terrific. And you just feel you're not only feeding them physically, but um, providing some other sustenance, which, you know, you could sound very silly about what that means, but uh, it's food for the soul, I suppose. Well, exactly. It goes back to that connection and community that we keep talking about throughout just these last few moments. You know, that I think that's what this is teaching us is we sometimes have gotten, I'm just going to throw it out there, we've gotten too big and it becomes impersonal. And I like the idea, you know, we, we, we had been encouraged to grow and to, because we could have, we could have gone Nazi in the first couple of years. We've, we've only been in existence two years, you know, and you know, how many commissions down the road and one residency and coming up on possibly our second. It's important to have that quality of connection and these smaller groups together, you know, the first week, you know, they, some of them went out running at lunchtime together just to just to sort of chat after having a morning of composing and they'd have their own sort of time together and they go back again. And cause it's quiet time between nine and, and four 30. It's respected. You don't visit each other without permission. It's, it's truly your time to work. Like you say, these friendships started and it was magical to watch this happening and how they would mentor each other, how the jokings, ha- you know, the joking went on. And just a few weeks, of, just a few weeks into the, into this whole lockdown, one of the composers, because we have WhatsApp groups for each week that was that were there, she'd say, hey, how is everybody? I haven't heard from you guys. You know, what's the scoop? And I just thought, wow, that's great. Because number one, either this person needed to reach out for themselves, which is brave to put your head, your head above the parapet, but also for others to, to write back and say, yeah, I'm fine. How are you doing? You know, and I, I like that there's a long-term sense of established community. And if there's anything that the re- residencies are for is not just selfish gain, but the building of a new kind of network that resonates beyond just the four weeks at the Red House. 
And I, well, as you said, there's a, there is, I mean, there's, you know, like a family meal, there's something very profound, something which humans need, the idea of sitting around and sharing a meal. And stories, it's, telling your story. It's, it's obviously, it's so funny, you know, all those, you know, Passover traditions and, you know, share, break, breaking bread together, whatever, mm. religious, uh, you know, it's clearly a fundamental human need, the idea of sharing food together. At a very simple level, that's that's all that we're doing is, is, is providing a, a, a place where everybody can share food together and feel that connection. And, it's, uh, and, and bringing in industry leaders, people that are out there with the titles who run our organizations, bringing them to that table is a, level, a leveler. It's really about, can you pass the green beans? I think that's really important because then status doesn't matter. It's more about what we share, how we share, and then we become just humans talking about whatever we're making. And we're makers, we're doers. That's, that's what we do as, as creative people. And I, I like that, you know, sitting around the table. And then now these composers, librettists can now call on these people because there's no, there's no blockade there of, of worry. It's because I know that they couldn't help but have a second piece of pie. So I've got that, you know, I know who they are. That's important, it's simple. It really is just that simple. And wild plum came out of foraging as well. The wild plum hedge where we pick fruit every year. And I, I'm sure we've said this many times before, but Chris being the wordsmith came up with it, that you know, here are these plums that give to us unconditionally every year for us to make what we want to make. You know, jam, chutneys, God knows how many chunks of dams and cheese I sent you that one year. And um, HP sauce. HP sauce. Ooh, our HP sauce. Welcome. And they, and then we want to do the same. We just want to make that simple connection of being able to provide. I don't, you know, and sometimes we can't because we're not made of money and we're chasing the same nickel that everybody else is, but it's simple. Yeah. And it's 28 straight days of cooking though. Oh my God. How many loaves? That's an awful lot. Baked 45 loaves. Good grief. Yeah, because <laughs> being the newbies we were, we completely forgot to schedule the day off for ourselves. <laughs> it was ridiculous. It really was. But I have to say, I, there were more mornings that I can tell you where I would um, put on my wellies and go out to the garden of the Red House to prepare for windfalls because there was a storm. So I would make orchard fruit butter and stuff. And I would just sit down on a bench and cry to think about what Britain had left behind for us, not only as a nation and as creators and all of that, and how Sarah Bardwell enabled us to have these residencies. And there it was, this garden. Once again, the simplicity of the food Penny had planted in the garden that we were reaping to feed these. It's so clear. It's so simple. And I was incredibly grateful and moved by the simplicity of it. I, I loved it. Out of Wild Plum, it does bear fruit, which, of course, is the music that they're writing as a result yes. of the courses and yes. the connections yeah. they make and the teaching they've received, etc. And so really interesting in this day and age now where, as a profession, we're facing a whole new world, really where yep. all of the expectations and the assumptions we've made have been literally chucked over the edge of a cliff. It'll be very interesting, I think, how the world of new music responds. In fact, it's quite exciting in one sense, because composers will be presented with a whole new set of challenges. And also then adding in all of course, the social distancing stuff that will have to be put in place for performance. So um, your role is suddenly even more important because there'll be many young composers out there who are desperate to get their work heard, but don't quite know how to go about it. And so um, it, talk about precipitous timing, the fruit of your labours will potentially be even more critical, actually, in, in years to come. Well, we hope so, but it, obviously we don't know either. What's no, of course not. So it's... Uh... It feels like the big old pause button has just been hit at the moment. But what we feel as a sm very small organisation, that we can be nimble. You know, we're not, we're not, not trying to sort of get a tanker going. And uh, No, exactly. You can pivot. So uh, we hope that yeah. when, things, when things become clearer, then we can jump in with some ideas and say, OK, let's do this, let's do that. <laughs> but at the moment, obviously, it's um, planning is just impossible at the moment. and also i think planning is pointless right now because mm. 
we can only respond daily to what's yeah. presented to us, which is very little currently. Yeah. I mean, I've had, you know, mentor meetings with, you know, artistic advisors from just say slowly, slowly. There are, there are, there were plans in the works, you know, through 22, you know, and, and there are collaborations and commissions already grinding forward. And we think, okay, number one, if we announced it would be stupid because we don't know whether that can happen to go back to our funders to say, we want to do this now in a time of crisis when people can't pay their mortgages and we're asking money for a commission right now feels really rude and and insensitive. I don't know when the time is again to crank back up. And if anything, I think it it has to go back to the personal. It can't be the the mass fundraising sort of thing. It has to be the one-on-one call to say, okay, we're slowly starting to think about moving forward. These are the sort of things we're looking at. I think it has to go back to that simplicity of one-to-one. I think that it's, it's, it's important. It's, you know, make it personal. And local, I think it's going to be the thing. I think that we've been living in this sort of massive international Somebody in Australia is competing, if you like, mm. for attention with somebody in Austria and all around the world. And, and uh, I think initially, certainly, everybody's going to think, right, local, keep it local. Because globalisation has it's grown to the point of too far. And exactly. now we have no choice but to say, OK, we'll stay within our borders because we're not going to be allowed to do anything else, firstly. Yes. <laughs> So I think as a community in the UK, we certainly have a responsibility to each other to try and keep going, but also to recognise that these borders are now there, albeit with the added advantage, I suppose, of the internet and what that offers digitally. But I think it's interesting, isn't it, how globalisation has always been trumpeted as the best thing, what everybody needs. This crisis has localised everything. It's Mm. localised food production, it's localised food supply because it's had to. It's localised supply of things like PPE for hospital workers. Yes. That there's lots of knock-on effects to all of that. And interesting, I think, because it's suddenly brought into focus, sort of front and centre, really, who are important in our society, where the importance lies. It isn't the big businessmen and it isn't those who are writing salacious gossip in national newspapers. It's mm-hmm. absolutely the case that it's the people who are nurses and doctors in the hospital. It's the delivery drivers who bring us our whatever we require. It's the shopkeepers. It's the carers. It's the musicians and the cultural sector who are providing entertainment at home. So it's mm-hmm. almost like the reset button has been pressed in attitude senses as well. So it'll be very interesting in the coming months and years. I mean, I hope as well that the BBC is now safe from being dismantled. I think the BBC has done a great job of creating programming to cope with all ages now being at home and having to be occupied for hours at a time. So in music terms, I think that localization could bear great fruit, like the Renaissance after the plague. It's important so important. I mean, we've always shopped local. We're sort of, you know, on our high horse about that. But I have to say our, our local shopkeepers have been outrageously excellent. I mean, the deliveries, you know, the, mm. the fish, we call them the fish boys, but, you know, the, the heart brothers, you know, that do um, fish at our local farmer's market on Thursdays are now doing deliveries. You know, the butcher that, you know, and devises that you call them up and, I mean, Chris ordered more than we really needed just because he wanted the free two dozen eggs. But, you know. <laughs> interesting thing i think i'm finding for us is i'm well certainly personally i usually run on a sort of empty fridge system empty the fridge and then then think about getting a few extra things and i'm always, I'm always sort of winding down what it is that's in the fridge and now partly i think that's because of always being aware of well there's no point stocking up too much stuff because you're going away under lockdown i suppose we also are careful to order a, a deliverable quantity of food but our fridge is absolutely busting and, yes mine too yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's only myself and my 12 year old daughter in the house it's yeah. ridiculous but actually we are getting through i'm not wasting anything no no no, no, no. but it's, it's it's a whole it's a whole different way of we, we just have all this plenty at home which is odd under the circumstances you know because we're just um not hoarding, I'm, I'm emphasise that, <laughs> but um, ordering more than 
normally do in order to yeah. make it worthwhile for a delivery man to drop off? Absolutely. And that, I mean, there are benefits to that. I took a delivery from Neil's Yard Dairy in London, oh, yes. who, of course, are supplying cheese from all of the little cheesemakers around the UK who are struggling. And of course, you can freeze cheese. So I've chopped up portions to keep in the fridge, which I'll use over the next two weeks. But then I've got single portions which I've bagged up and put in the freezer because actually it's a really lovely thing to have that there whenever I like but also I have to say like you locally our suppliers have been incredible we're so lucky because where I live we have it's like a butcher come deli come uh, caterer come um, off license (laughs) they kind of do everything Um, and it's really great because they do do what I would term a ready meal but they do shepherd's pie and chili con carne and scouse. And one portion, which only costs four pounds, is enough for Ruby and I to have without any thought, you know. Um, so no more trips to big supermarkets for me after this. Our yeah. greengrocers are amazing. They've set up on the pavement outside so you don't have to go into the shop. And um, they just fill up these big cardboard flats pallet boxes yeah it's like I'm being spoilt I it's quite amazing thing quality of it's amazing and I think that's also a real lesson that our local butcher and our local greengrocer may be 20% more expensive than going to one of the big boys but the quality is so much better that it's worth paying every penny we never really look at the cost of hopping in the car to go to the one of the big boys and and the long-term effect I mean it's probably pennies to some people if they want to get really ratty about it but it's about the congestion on the roads. It's about the greenness of all that. It's about the knock-on effect of some local businesses. And our, our local gal, Christine, who runs the, the health food shop, we have a WhatsApp group and she just says, okay, Shipton Mill has just delivered a bunch of stuff and, you know, and I've got them in one pound bags, you know, come, you know, come quickly or, or, you know, and she has a, a, a brown paper envelope outside the door. If you don't want to wait in the queue, you know, she'll, they'll fill it up and call you. I was talking to Tim Redmond, conductor, the other day on the phone, and he kept using the word reimagining. And I think that's true. We just have to reimagine. And we don't have to actually reimagine all that hard because we're just coming full circle to what used to happen, not even 100 years ago. It was less than that. I mean, because you used to talk about the Capri stores around yeah, in, yeah, in your yeah, neighborhood well, growing up. Yeah, you know? I grew up with small shops. I mean, I can't remember the first time I went to a supermarket, it was probably 15 or something, I think. So that's how it was. You just went, and I was, I was as a small boy, I was sent off with a shopping basket by my mum, you know, off to the greengrocers, and, and she had an account then, and she paid up the end of the week, and I would just be sent off to get the, the, the groceries. That's how I grew up with food. And the bakery, we had German bakers in our in our area. And I used to love the smell of it, not only the sugar and everything, because let's face it, yum. But uh, I love the way they would tie the boxes with string, the way old-fashioned bakeries did, you know. That, that sort of ritual, because that's something we haven't mentioned, is the ritual of food. You know, we sort of did with talking about Passover mm. and such things. Our local bakers who I adore, called Satterthwaite's, make the best sausage rolls on the planet. They're currently shut because they're trying to figure out how to do the social distancing thing, not for the customers, but for the staff in yes. baking terms. Because their premises are very old. They've had them a very, very, very long time. They have all of that to figure out. They only recently have stopped using the string to tie the boxes. Their food is something I've grown up with because their cakes are the same as they were when I was a child. Mm. So it's funny, again, it's the ritual of, if there's a birthday in our family, we'll go and buy one of their chocolate button cakes. Mm-hmm. My grandmother used to do it. I now do it. What's in the Scouse? Scouse is an interesting thing. Now, Scouse is in the notes from Musicians Cookbook. We we have obviously accepted submissions from wherever. And Peter O'Connor, who's a flautist, lives in Anfield, which is in almost inner city, really, next to the football ground, Liverpool Football Club's football ground. His recipe is, is not the same either. My recipe is my grandmother's and she always, along with the, well, it would be whatever you could get really, lamb neck or mutton or, um, it was lamb based though, with carrots, turnip, potatoes and a gravy. I think that's basically it. But she would always put a pinch of curry powder in. And it's something that, something that you don't notice when you're eating it. But if you stop eating for long enough, you just taste it right at the back. It's the last thing you taste. And I've never known anyone else do that. But it's, it's a bit like trifle. If you say to any British family, Scouse nonetheless is variable. 
but it's not the same as Lancashire hot pot. <gasps> no, now, Sir John Tomlinson, <laughs> his recipe for Lancashire hot pot is also on the website. Excellent. Now, I said, I had a discussion with John. I told him what I thought the recipe would be, and he laughed out loud at me. One of our artistic advisors. Yes. <laughs> and, and somebody I completely adore. I mean, it goes to show, I mean, he's written this lovely description with the rest, just goes to show, you know, it's, it's all about childhood for him. Mm-hmm. How, where Lancashire Hot Pot came from was, of course, it was a worker's meal. Now, yeah. actually, Scouse is also the same. Scouse was a sailor's meal. Um, yeah. And in fact, Scouse exists in Norway, um, in Bergen, and it also exists in Hamburg. It just has a different spelling. And so, um, and it's completely different. I've eaten scouse in both places to test it out. There's <laughs> no resemblance to in scouse Liverpool terms. So it's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. But that, that need for nutrition in a basic, humble way is something that you do find throughout the whole of Europe. I mean, you know, in every, you know, goulash is another mm. example of yeah. the Hungarian version of a Lancashire hot pot. So there's a, there's very much a payoff with all of it in the sense that human beings need wholesome hot dinners that don't cost a lot on mass. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, is it not, um, this could be controversial, sorry, Yankee sticking up her hand here, but isn't also, is it not also the basic structure for the innards of a Cornish pasty as well? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the interesting thing about a Cornish pasty, if you don't know, um, and some of the listeners may not know this, but when you when you look at the structure of a Cornish pasty, it's basically a circle with the stew, the thick, sticky stew in the middle that's been folded over and then it's been turned. So the crust is is around the curved edge of the pasty. Yeah, and right. that's so that the miners could hold on to the crust, but they didn't eat it. That was because they discarded it because their hands were dirty. Yes. And it meant they could have a clean meal which was warm and nutritious without having to to wash their hands or te- be taken out of the mines for their lunch yeah fascinating i i think i love that little piece of history it's yeah. just makes common sense some some of these things are just mm. once again just simple things mm. that we just did to survive you know and you you it's not really the right question to ask you to because actually you're capable of co- coping and surviving regardless but have you found that you've missed anything during lockdown? Has there been anything that you haven't been able to get hold of? It's going to sound awful. No, but I, I, I panicked about asparagus. He <laughs> <laughs> did not want to miss asparagus season. He didn't want it from Peru. He didn't yeah. want it from, you know, Ecuador or anything like that. He wanted British asparagus. And I think you... I walked to the local farm shop. No, so I... Ha- yeah, I presume you're happy now, Chris. Yes, yes. <laughs> And our greengrocer has closed because she has cared for her elderly mother and right. she was worried about transmitting mm. coronavirus. So she's closed down for the foreseeable future. I miss Karen, our greengrocer, yeah. so much. So she was always reliable, you know, the, and she, you know, seasonal food. I just want to say that's something I always find amazing, that asparagus in America costs less than Brussels sprouts. I mean, that's just mad. But... <laughs> but uh, hate Brussels sprouts, so I never buy them. So <laughs> They've become quite she-she in America. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's just, oh. I, I, I have no explanation for my country at the moment. So no, just, I think watching, it's, it's a bit like hold my beer, isn't it? Where it comes to, you know, outdoing each other in terms of the nutty sort of politicians that we've got in charge. I don't really want to talk about politics. But, but I but, find it in the States how my, how my family cope with this because they're, they're just so used to living in these housing estates where they get in the car to do their shopping. Now, my eldest sister, with whom I'm closest, she's going to be 70 this year. Her partner is a little younger. But, you know, they've been having deliveries. But it's the American system is not, it's not set up for this. No. You're lucky in the sense that you know we have these still these enclaves of communities and small Absolutely. towns. Absolutely, and we can walk there. I mean, all my American family are... Well, actually, my mum's sister is lucky because where they live in Sunnyvale, which is near Apple headquarters, mm-hmm. in fact, there are places that they can walk to from there. But that's quite rare, I think, in, in even in Californian terms, which is slightly more European in many respects than, say, yes. the Midwest, of course. In terms of our communities, that's the thing that's going to have to happen is the adaptation. 
or the reimagining to yes. steal Tim's phrase, yes. because actually the need to eat is so profound that there mm-hmm. will have to be ways of coping in the supply chain. Crap eating will go away. I would love for that. Certainly in American terms. I mean, actually, even in British terms, it's really shown me again. I mean, I already knew, but that my my cooking is better than what I will get from any fast food outlet. And actually, I've no appetite to even think about fast food or go for a takeaway. My daughter asked the other night, could we have some Chinese food? So I made Chinese food, but I didn't go to a takeaway for it. I just used what I like, and I'm cooking Japanese food tonight, which is our very favorite. But some of that has come from, and I'm sure you're the same, because we've traveled such a lot in our jobs. Our food horizons are much broader than most people's. And it doesn't worry me to go to a supermarket and buy miso, for instance, whereas a huge amount of population wouldn't necessarily know what that was or how to use it. Probably that set us up very well in this instance where I'm trying to vary our intake as much as I can because otherwise it's deathly boring. You know, you can't really cope if I'm, I was eating the same things every day as well as being stuck at home. The one thing that I've also loved is in terms of returning into the community, I've got a Dutch bike with a basket on the front. Oh, oh so envy. <laughs> we cycle to get our food. Oh, we get. We get exercise as well as there's all sorts of knock-on effects so that's what America needs to think about because yes they're so car dominated mm-hmm. and they're so lacking in community centers yeah the thing that always depresses me enormously in the states is that um eating basically decent food now has now become a sort of middle class indulgence and and requires a certain amount of wealth you see what the food is available to large swathes of of income poor americans it's just terrible food it's just disgusting you know malnutritioning food it, it it's pulp in a, in tins it's it's awful and you need to buy sort of potato which won't poison you because it's so full of crap or meat which isn't injected with hormones it's really expensive mm. and it shouldn't be like that I mean, and, you, and, you, and this has now come to the surface with trump saying he's now making the meat processing plants work you know, they, 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 was, they were going to shut them down or sh- they were facing problems with social distancing in the meat prison. And you've got, you know, he's now imposed this order where they have to work. They have to stay open and thus endangering the people who yeah. work in the meat processing plants. But that's because all the meat processing plants are owned by just sort of four corporations mm. who control the entire, the whole America. Which goes back to our, our comment earlier about globalization has not been the answer to all our prayers, you know, that, that it comes with consequences. And we've been discussing this for decades, but it's come home to roost in this very specific example of, of our living at the moment with this pandemic. It's, I mean, it's this idea that cheap food is bad food, and it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, it's perfectly possible to eat healthily and well on a low income if the produce is there, which is probably like the scouts, you know, a meal of scouts, as we said earlier, it's, it's poor man's food and it's very nutritious. If you dismantle these global supply chains and if you do shop local, the local suppliers don't then have to boost their prices because they're having to A, compete against other people. We don't then pay the price of several layers of distribution and supply between farm and table, which I think is what I particularly object to. Uh, I would much rather go to my local farm shop and say, here's my money. What can I have for this? Eat seasonally, which I mean, our grand, my grandmother would never have tolerated eating strawberries at Christmas time. Yes, yeah. yes, she yeah. would have thought that was madness. They had been frozen, and they ended up, you know, in the trifle somewhere. You know, <laughs> well, no, the the, mo- the closest any trifle would have in well, certainly in my mum's case, is strawberry jelly, yes. which has not got any fruit in it, as far as I can tell. <laughs> but that thing of eating seasonally, of course, means that if you're not refrigerating fruit endlessly. It does retain all its nutrients. Mm. So not only is it cheap and nutritious, but also you're getting unmitigated taste. So it should actually taste better than a lot of the stuff we get generally. I mean, it really upsets me, actually. Firstly, in America, where you go into a supermarket and all of the apples are waxed, which I hate. And the summer in England as well. And I I won't buy them if they are. But also that thing of I, I love to be able to smell tomatoes. 
Mm. You know if tomatoes are okay to be eaten because of the way they smell. Yes. Same with melon. Say, you know, it's that thing we've lost the connection between farm and table. Hopefully, this period is is a reminder. The less steps there are between the two, mm. the healthier it is for everybody. Well, this is whole thing for adding value, isn't it? That's what supermarkets do. The more you can put the food through a process uh, by whatever it is, you know, peeling the the carrots, the carrots yeah, or whatever, yeah. and chopping them up, then. You're not changing the flavour of the, or the quality of the food. You're just adding cost to. Yes, it's like there was a there was an instance with one of our supermarkets. I won't name them, where they were selling in the vegetable aisle a whole cauliflower for about a pound, hmm. and you went into the prepared food aisle, and <laughs> they were selling in a plastic carton covered in cling film or whatever a lid, a slice of cauliflower, and literally nothing on it marketed as a cauliflower steak yes. which was three pounds <laughs> it's balmy that's why i've been loving this springtime as you said earlier you know foraging because the wild garlic has been unbelievable yes you're very into that aren't you yes it's yeah. about there's I a mean, recipe a day coming out from that <laughs> <laughs> and and it's but it's there's no way you people say oh you have to be a responsible forager and absolutely you must be you must you know leave enough for everyone and there's you know in the foraging sort of rules about how much weight of certain things you should you were allowed to take but there's no blooming way we could have you know oh and luckily enough the forest the woodland where we forage for this wild garlic our local town council just bought it so it's now um, I mean, it, it's 10 acres, isn't it? Oh, no, it's massive. And massive. I mean, massive. I could go out again and get some more wild garlic. And it's um, so versatile. Yeah. Great for pesto. The fritters, what, weren't those flower fritters looking great? Local they beer. absolutely look beautiful. <laughs> I mean, talk about photographable. <laughs> yeah. Really. But, but that goes to show as well that um, for all of these sort of Instagram happy people who like to photograph their food actually the food that photographs best is the simplest mm. and in its most natural state and the color of that wild garlic is so special it's so bright we don't have grassy garden in our in our house it's it's um we have a terrace out the back which has been great being you know traveling singers because you just lock up the house and it's fine nothing no grass to mow I mean, we're going back to saying about how busy this period has been. I, I literally, between homeschooling and cooking and yeah. keeping the house tidy and clean and, you know, just even getting up in the morning, there's been quite a challenge in ways I hadn't expected. It is quite a hard thing to cope with n not so much lack of routine, but actually being in the same space all the time. Actually motivating yourself to getting up and saying, okay, this morning I'm going to go and mow the lawn or whatever. Mm. Yeah. It feels like quite a big step somehow. So. Yeah, that's. I started, I instituted and in, it goes out the window and comes back in and the one drawer a day routine. Chris's parents and my parents are both gone. So in anticipation of all the rest, the final bits of my things finally coming over from Chicago over the summer being shipped, we we're just trying to clear out. And I decided, okay, one drawer a day, but it's just one drawer. That way we feel we've done something, but we haven't felt overwhelmed by having to do everything in a room. It's been great because then we just sort of say to the kids, you know, hey, do you want some of your grandmother's grapefruit spoons? You know, little, little things like that. So they, you know, their, their Easter boxes got full of not only cookies and, and other things, but leftover spoons from... What's lovely is that you very clearly appreciate all the important things, which is family, which is food, which mm. is nurturing others, which is taking care of each other. And those are things that I think right now are what people need to hear. It's actually a very interesting, just a little mind switch to say, don't just don't procrastinate. This is the ideal situation. Well, when, when you run, rather than going, oh, well, I've got all the time in the world. I'll do that tomorrow. It's, no, just do it now. If you can get that mindset, which I haven't succeeded all the time, but when I do, it's amazing how much you can get done. Because you just keep going. You just go, right, okay, while well, I'm doing this, I shall do that, and then I'll get on and do that, you know. But uh, you know, it's so easy to put things off, you know, like emptying the drawers or redecorating the house or whatever it is. I had this sort of epiphany a couple of years ago. I was, I was home on my own, limited amount of time, or a month or something, and, and I thought, well, I'll, 
right, where do I start? Well, just start. It's, it's when you're faced with a mountain of things, it's difficult to prioritize. Just start with one of them and then, and then just keep going. That's my guru you, advice. You, but uh, we go, but you're back to saying, you know, what's what we find is important of the nurture, nurturing of each other. I go back to how Chris and I started of, of in our relationship, which is coming on 26 mm-hmm. years. We read this book together that was recommended by Bob Tier, I think. Yeah. Um, Alan Watts, The Wisdom of Insecurity. And it's very East-West regarding philosophy. But it's true in this time of, of reimagining, if we're going to keep using these same words, the West, if you will, is imbalanced. And so the East side of our, of our thinking has taken up the slack. There's a calmness. There's a there's a, a sense of our first instinct was the the West kept going, make content, make content, sing, 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 perform, perform, perform. Everyone got out there and it was very noisy. But then all of a sudden we're finding at the longer we have to do this, how the other side of us says, you know, the doing can have a sense of purpose, a sense of calmness, a sense of focus in it. I've come down to trying to ask better questions. So my days are clearer and more focused. And hopefully I will come out not exhausted because I, I fear for our adrenal system in this period because we're also ready to come back and to start performing again that actually we're, we're, we're revving all the time. And instead, I think we need to take our foot off. One of the things, the loops that have been going around in my head is I want to live an extraordinary life. Well, then define what that means. So I'm going to just try and keep asking better questions that lead to the whys of things and think longer arc, not immediate gratification. So trying to find my East-West balance a bit better. I mean, I grew up in Tokyo, so there's, there's a, a source to that in my own personal being, besides being a very Midwest Chicago girl. So I want to ask better questions so I can lead an extraordinary life. Thank you to Lucy and Chris for joining me and talking about creativity, life during lockdown, and remembering what the good things in life are. It's also been really interesting gaining an insight into how they support not just the music community, but also their local community, about how important food is in their universe and how to live a life less ordinary. Please support Notes from Musicians' Kitchens by subscribing to our website, www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's only a tenner, and every penny is going to help Musicians UK, a great cause. Make sure to tune in to the next episode, where I'll be talking to another music professional about what food means to them. Keep an eye on Instagram to discover their identity. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. And remember, food is love.